23 was written by David, as were most of the songs that make up book one of the Psalter. And of course, this is probably one of the most beloved passages in all of the Old Testament, if not the entire Bible, certainly one of mine. Even unbelievers know and love this short psalm. Many of us know it by heart. Its imagery is picturesque and memorable, transcends time and cultures and languages. In other words, no matter who we are or where we're from or what language we speak, we get the message of this psalm, that we can trust God to take care of us because he's our perfect shepherd and nothing, nothing could ever give us more hope than that. And so let's read together Psalm 23. A psalm of David. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. For you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. And I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Amen. The word of the Lord. And those are awfully beautiful words, aren't they? They are full of comfort. They're uplifting and hopeful. And that's why we love them. The Lord is my shepherd. The message of this psalm is so easy for us to understand because it says that God is our perfect guide, our perfect defender. And he is the perfect object of our worship. The only one ever worthy of our worship. But you know, from time to time, we've got to ask hard questions of Scripture. Uh, Not because we think it doesn't have the answers, but because of the incredible answers it gives us when we do that. And so let's ask a difficult question of Psalm 23. If God is such a good shepherd, why in the world didn't he keep me from having a stroke last April? If God is such a good shepherd, why is your believing friend or your believing loved one so sick? Why were you laid off from your job? Why is your marriage struggling? Why are you having financial issues? Why are you lonely? Why are you having those troubles at work? If God is such a good shepherd, why hasn't he protected us from all those things? How can he be that perfect shepherd of Psalm 23? if these are the kinds of things that are happening to us? Does God really take good care of us? Well, David, who is no stranger to calamity and strife, as we know, emphatically says yes, even though all through David's life people wanted to kill him, including his own son. His own son wanted to kill him. David, of course, created some calamity of his own uh, with his sin, and that in turn brought on a great deal of trouble for God's people, attacks from every quarter of their lives, wars and incredible hardship. 
And yet David's shepherd in Psalm 23 provides everything that he needs, restores him to health, steers him in the right way, causes his fear to disappear even in the middle of evil because he knows his shepherd is right there with him. David's shepherd comforts him with protection and discipline. David's shepherd really gives him a bona fide banquet right there in front of his enemies. These enemies, these enemies who would love to make a banquet out of David and the rest of the sheep. David's shepherd soothes his wounds and treats him with honor and dignity as, as God anoints his head with oil and oh, his cup overflows. And he does this even though David is only a sheep. And so David declares that his, his life is full full to the point of overflowing. And the point of all of this, and this is the big idea of Psalm 23, is that God is our perfect shepherd, which means that we can trust him completely. And as we meditate on this truth today, we're also going to gain a deeper understanding of how it is that God is our perfect shepherd, even in light of the circumstances of our lives. And here's the lesson that we'll take home with us today. Our lesson is that Christ is everything we need. Everything. And so let's go ahead and dig into this incredible, beautiful psalm. You remember back in early January, we meditated on Psalm 8, which describes the majesty of God and the fact that even though the, the scope and the scale of God is so huge, that you and I matter to him because of the blood of Jesus Christ. And so now in Psalm 23, we get to see how intimately God cares for us. And we see that with the very first verse, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. This, this opening line is just a, it's a profound declaration. The Lord, Yahweh, the great and majestic God of Psalm 8, whose glory is above the heavens, the one true God who created the entire universe is my shepherd. This is a God who cares not only for the big things, who sets his mind on things too wonderful for us to fathom, but he also he also sets his mind on the small things. He takes care of the needs of the birds of the air and the lilies of the field. This is a God who cares not only for the flock of, of sheep that makes up the church universal. This is a God who not only cares for the flock that is in this room, but this is a God who knows you and he knows me <coughs> excuse me, intimately. This is a God who knows all of his sheep. You know, the Bible speaks of God often as a shepherd. Elder Scotty James just read from a few, a few minutes ago from Ezekiel 34. And there we saw how Yahweh declared himself to be the shepherd of his people who would deliver them from the hands of those shepherd kings after David who had fed on the sheep, who had led the sheep uh, not to the green pastures, but to ruin. And God also makes that amazing declaration in verse 23 of chapter 34 that I will set up over them one shepherd, my servant David, and he shall feed them. He shall feed them and be their shepherd. And that shepherd, of course, is our Messiah. And so 
just by the way, to, I hope you understand that passage, my servant David is simply a shorthand way of saying that the Messiah is going to be a descendant of David. But with all this talk of shepherds, what is a shepherd anyway? I mean, you know, we hear of God being a shepherd. The Lord is my shepherd just rolls off of our tongues. Let's make sure we understand what a, what a shepherd is. And let's make sure that we understand what a big deal the sheep are to the lives of the Jews. Sheep were central to the survival of the Jewish people since the days of Abraham, all the way back to the beginning, really. And not only was Abraham a shepherd, but so was Jacob and Moses and King David and Amos and others. Women were shepherds too, such as Rachel, who was a shepherdess when she met Jacob, her future husband. And of course, Moses' wife, uh, Zipporah was one of seven daughters who tended their father's sheep. Sheep were everywhere in Jewish culture. And just to give you a sense of the scale of it, Job ended up with 14,000 sheep. <laughs> That's a lot of sheep. King Solomon, uh, at the temple's declaration in 1 Kings chapter 8, sacrificed 120,000 sheep. And so sheep were not only necessary at the temple for those atoning sacrifices for our sins that, that vividly portray how horrible our sin is to God, but sheep were also necessary for very practical things like wool and meat and milk. And so sheep meant clothing and blankets and food and even shelter. Everybody depended on sheep. Now, with so many sheep running around, they had to be looked after, right? Somebody had to watch over them. And so, usually, it was the sheep's, uh, sheep owner's children who watched over the sheep. And this usually fell to the task of the youngest child who was old enough to do that. And so, young men and women, uh, usually in their early teens, tended to, to the flocks all year round. Women like Rachel and Zipporah would do so when there was uh, pasture available close to home. This was usually in the springtime. But they would only pasture the sheep within the community in which they lived because for a woman going farther out from that was a very dangerous thing to do because there weren't state police out there and cell phones and 911 and all of that. And so it was the men, shepherds like David, who would spend weeks at a time out in the vast areas of the wilderness looking for pasture land for the sheep. This would be during the late uh, summer and uh, through the winter months. And it was a rough and dangerous life. And that's why he carried with him a couple of important tools. One, of course, the staff, which we'll see later, but he also carried with him something called a rod, which is basically a club. And that club, was the, he carried that thing uh, to fight off bears and lions that would try to make a meal out of, out of his sheep. And so just imagine that. You're out in the middle of nowhere, and your, your survival depends on being able to beat off a bear with a club. And that's exactly what David did. He says so when he convinces Saul to allow him to fight Goliath in 1 Samuel 17. He says, your servant used to keep sheep for his father. And when there came a lion or a bear and took a lamb from the flock, I went after him and struck him and delivered him out of his mouth. And if he arose against me, I caught him by his beard and struck him and killed him. 
Your servant has struck down both lions and bears, and this uncircumcised Philistine shall be like one of them, for he has defied the armies of the living God. There's a fellow who knows how to use what God has given him. And this is a picture of what Christ has done for us in saving us. But, but the shepherd would, well, the sh- uh, a shepherd out in the fields would risk his life for the sheep only if it belonged to him or his family. There were hired shepherds, but they wouldn't risk their lives for the sheep. And this is exactly the distinction that Jesus is making in John chapter 10. As he's, he makes this startling claim that he is the good shepherd of Ezekiel chapter 34 and of Psalm 23. He's the good shepherd who, who's not only willing to fight lions and bears to protect his sheep, but he's also willing to die for them. I am the good shepherd, he says in verse 11 of chapter 10 in John. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd who does not own the sheep sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees. And the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. And so Jesus is willing to die for the sheep because he owns the sheep. Now, a good shepherd also knows every member of the flock. And this is exactly what Uh, Why Jesus says in the next verse in John chapter 10 that I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. I read a story about a shepherd in the Middle East about 60 years ago. And this, this man said that he didn't even have to count his sheep every night because he could sense whether one was missing. That's how familiar he was with his sheep. And he goes on to say that if you were to put a cloth over my eyes and bring any sheep and only let me put hands on its face, I could tell in a moment if it was mine or not. Isn't that incredible? That's the kind of relationship our Lord has with us. This is the kind of relationship a good shepherd has with his sheep. He has repeatedly caressed their faces as he anoints their heads with oil, like in verse 5 of our psalm. And he does this so he can soothe the scratches and the wounds that they've received as they go grubbing through the bushes as they graze. And the oil also protects them from all those bugs and gnats and stuff that buzz around their heads. He's felt every inch of their bodies over and over and over again as he checks for injuries and for illness. And also in verse 5, he has prepared tables for them. That is, he's gone out a little ahead of the sheep time after time, day after day, and he's prepared the field for his sheep. He's, he's gotten rid of the poisonous plants there that he can find. And he's, and he's gotten rid of the dangerous critters that are uh, creeping around on the ground so his sheep can eat in safety. And not only that, he gives each of his sheep names. And these are names which the sheep learn, and they also learn to recognize the shepherd's voice. And they know the shepherd's voice so well that you can mix up several herds all together. And when just one of the shepherds wants to leave with his sheep, all he's got to do is call out to him, and just his sheep 
will follow him. And even if a stranger knows the call, the sheep won't follow the stranger. That's how well the sheep know the shepherd's voice. Now, a lot has been made about how dumb sheep are, and that may or may not be true. It depends on who you read. But, but what is clear is that sheep are very dependent on the shepherd to provide for them. They don't have that innate ability to take care of themselves that most animals seem to have. But more importantly, even than that, sheep also have a tendency to wander aimlessly and helplessly into danger. As they're munching on the grass, they're munching and munching and they just drift away from the flock. They go over here to check out what's on the hillside and then lo and behold, all of a sudden, where's the sheep? It's lost. And I think this is really the reason why God compares us to sheep. How many times did God's people wander away from God? <clears throat> Even while Moses was on Mount Sinai in the presence of God, and he's getting ready to come down the mountain with the very oracles of the one true God. What are God's people doing? They're busying themselves with making a golden calf to bow down and worship. Likewise, how easy it is for us to wander. We can, we can wander off on strange tangents in biblical doctrine and theology. We can also just sort of decide to take a break from God, to just sort of check out for a while. We wander off of God personally. But whatever the case, we're just like the sheep who wander away from the safety of the flock and the real shepherd, and that puts us in danger. I read a story about how in Turkey about 10 years ago, about 1,500 sheep followed the lead sheep, not the shepherd, but followed the lead sheep right over a cliff. The first 400 of them died. And that cost the poor, horrified shepherd $75,000. But you know, when we wander from the essential teachings of the Christian faith or from the church, there's a cost, and we're in danger. We become easy prey for the lions and the wolves. It becomes easier for us to follow another sheep right over the cliff. And so back to verse 1. David is acknowledging that regardless of the high calling on his life, he's still nothing more than a sheep. Nothing more than a sheep who needs the guidance and the care of a good shepherd. And lo and behold, he's got one, the very best, in fact. He's got a shepherd who knows his name. And David is the kind of sheep who knows his master's voice. In other words, he has a trusting relationship with God. And since David belongs to this shepherd, he declares at the end of verse 1, I shall not want. I shall not want. Well, want in English used to mean need a whole lot more than it means desire like it does today. In modern English, when we say we want something, we most often mean we desire it. I want some fried chicken. I want a new car. I want a million dollars. I want Leslie to do the dishes so I don't have to. That never works. But here in verse 1, Want means lack. And so David is saying, I shall not need or lack. In Hebrew, this is very clear. The word is haser, which means to be lacking or needy. 
And so what he means is that since the Lord is his shepherd, he will not lack for anything that he needs. And that means that David is just perfectly content. Perfectly content. Have you ever been perfectly content with your God? Well, in America, I think we have a hard time distinguishing sometimes between our desires and our needs. We live in a culture that tries to convince us with a straight face that we need fast internet and the latest fashions to survive and to feel human. And so when we hear that David lacks for anything that he needs, our minds immediately go to material things. It's just the way we're wired as 21st century Americans. And because we're also pretty conditioned to expect happy endings, we tend to think that for God to be successful, our circumstances in life have got to end up happy. Not only do we expect that God will provide for us materially, but also that our situation will be agreeable to us. And so we end up tending to measure God's success based on the outcomes that we desire without really consulting Him sometimes. And our logic goes something like this. Well, God wants me to be happy, doesn't he? And so since he does, he should fix my, the, the, the problem in my life. He should heal my disease. He should fix my spouse. He should give me enough money to fix up the house. Because, I mean, after all, we're going to invite people over for Bible studies and it's got to look good. They won't come if it doesn't. But David is looking at life from a, a, a really a very different perspective. He's looking at life from the perspective of one of God's sheep. Now, he would agree with us that God wants him to be happy. He wants us to be happy. This is why God is such a good shepherd. He makes his sheep content and healthy. But if we're to be content and healthy sheep, first we've got to go, we've got to go where our shepherd leads us. We've got to do what he says, and we've got to accept what he gives us. In other words, our contentment doesn't come from our circumstances or material things or whatever. Our contentment comes from trusting the shepherd. That's the way this works. You see, when we trust the shepherd, we end up having the same desires our shepherd does. Leslie's been reading a book about Jim Elliott recently, and this is how he put it. You remember he's the missionary in the 1950s. He was made famous not too long ago by the movie The End of the Spear. It's a heart-wrenching and wonderful movie. Heart-wrenching because he was speared to death during his first encounter with the Akua Indians in South America. But then his wife, Elizabeth, she just picked right up where he left off. And she led many in that tribe to Christ, including the man who killed her husband. That's a sermon for another day about forgiveness, isn't it? But here's what Jim wrote in a letter about our desires and our wanting. And he wrote in the context of another one of David's psalms, Psalm 37, verse 4, which says, Delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. And so this is what Jim wrote. It does not say he will give you what you want. It does say he will give you the want. Delight in Christ brings desire for Christ. He gives the heart its desires. That is, he works in us the willing. This is why he can say in John 15, 7, ye shall ask what ye will, 
if ye abide, my will becomes his, and I can ask what I will if I delight myself in him. Only then can my desire be attained when it is his desire. And that sheds a whole lot of light, doesn't it, on what David means when he says he lacks for nothing because of his shepherd. David, his, David and his wants, they're the, they're the things that God desires him to have. That's what he wants. And so John Calvin explains uh, uh, this idea of he shall not want in this way. And not only so, but he also intimates, that is David, David also intimates that to live to God is in his, his estimation of so great importance that all he valued that he valued all the comforts of the, of the flesh only in proportion as they served to enable him to live to God. Brothers and sisters, isn't that what we sheep are for? Is to live to God? To live for our master's will? And so that's what David means when he says he lacks for nothing. He's living for the will of God. And so now we've got a biblical understanding of what true need is. Our true need is to live for Jesus Christ. And we don't need anything other than that. That's our sole purpose in life. And on exactly that point, verse 2 echoes, uh, has echoes for how God took care of his people when they wandered in the wilderness. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. Green pastures and still waters are places of rest and contentment for the sheep. And you see at noon, the shepherd would lead the sheep to the water so they could drink. And then, oh, if he could find a green pasture in the heat of the day, that's a perfect place for the sheep to lie down and rest. God provided similar rest for the people in the wilderness. The wilderness was this vast, uninhabitable desert wasteland, and yet manna fell from heaven every single day for 40 years to feed them. And God miraculously provided water for them in a bone-dry land. But you know, the lesson in the wilderness isn't that God is a genie in a bottle who are conjure up food and water and other stuff we want from thin air and rocks. The lesson for the Jews and for us today is that God was proving that he's trustworthy. He's proving to us that he is all we need. What the Jews needed and what we need above all things is not food and water, brothers and sisters. What we need is a relationship with the living God so that we can follow him and so that we can do his will. Jesus said in John 4:34, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. And so the point is, is that God is our green pasture. God is our pasture. God is the still water. God is the one who restores our souls in verse 3. God is the one who leads us in the way that we need to go. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. God is who refreshes us so we can go the right way. We've already seen what happens to the poor shepherd whose sheep chose the wrong path and jumped off a cliff. 
That's what can happen to us if we go off on our own. But you know what? God never, ever, 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 ever leads us to sin and destruction. He never leads us away from Himself. He always leads us toward blessing, toward righteousness, toward good things. He always leads us toward what is good for us. And so if there's a voice in your head telling you to go the other way, you know it's not from God. But you know, brothers and sisters, to enjoy the goodness that God has for us, we've got to follow the shepherd. We've got to. We've got to examine ourselves and examine our lives and see if that's what we're doing. You see, the picture here is that in biblical times, a shepherd never guided his sheep from behind. He never drove them against their will up the path. He always led them from the front. And then the sheep followed their master because they knew his voice. They knew that he would be protecting them and providing for them. But his sheep are prone to do. We're prone to wander. We're prone to convince ourselves that, well, God doesn't really mind our stepping away from the path for a little while. It's okay. God doesn't really mean that there's danger in hanging out with those so-called friends who want us to do things that he wouldn't approve of. There's really not any danger in watching that show or taking that drink or rejecting that commandment that we don't like. There's really not any danger of just setting our relationship with God aside for a while and just taking a break from all of this conviction and the word of God and these complicated things you see when we wander we cannot enjoy the blessing of God's provision for us for a very important reason we're not there to receive it we've got to follow the shepherd when we're not reading his word on a regular basis, we've got a much harder time distinguishing our master's voice above all the noise that the false shepherds are making. We are constantly surrounded by these voices that want to pull us away from our Lord. Brothers and sisters, we cannot know the right path to follow if we can't hear his voice. And this is why days like today are so important. And it's why having your Bibles open and reading them is so incredibly important. It's so that you will know your master's voice and go the way he wants you to go. And this is most important when we find ourselves in a dark and dangerous place. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, David says, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. But you know, sometimes God leads us around those valleys of the shadow of death, doesn't he? Sometimes he leads us away from them, so we don't even know that they're there. And we will never know in this life how often he does that. But sometimes... Sometimes the Lord leads us through the valley of the shadow of death. Sometimes 
we get cancer. Sometimes we have a stroke. Sometimes a loved one dies or we get fired or we're in a car accident or we deal with depression or our spouse isn't who we need them to be. Sometimes God allows those things to happen not to cause us to stray, but he leads us there for our own good in order to teach us that he is all we need so that we can learn that God himself is our green pasture, that he is our still waters, that God is our rest and not our health, not our wealth, not our circumstances, not our situation, not in anything that this world has to offer. And yet it is in those dark valleys when we are most vulnerable to our enemy. We are surrounded by our enemy, the devil who seeks to devour and to destroy. The devil and his minions would love to have us to become like them and to doubt our shepherd's ability to protect us. And at the very least, they want to wound us and hurt us and confuse us and just demoralize us and weaken our testimony. But our weapon against them, just as Pastor John preached last week, is not of this world. David says, I will fear no evil. Brothers and sisters, you and I have nothing to fear. We don't need to be afraid at all. And why? As David says, for you are with me. Do you see what's happening? God is with us. And the shepherd is walking with you through that valley. He's the kind of shepherd who lays down his life for his sheep. He's the kind of shepherd who can kill lions and bears and devils and demons. And so we don't have any reason to fear. Our relationship with our shepherd is unbreakable. He protects us with his rod and he guides us with the staff of his word and the power and presence of the Holy Spirit. Nothing can touch us. That is, as long as we follow him, as long as we follow on the right path that he has laid out for us. And if even so, if we truly belong to his flock, even when we stray, just as Jesus said of himself in Matthew 18, that he'll go searching for you and rejoice when he finds you. That is ever so true. But that's not to say that we won't come back to the green pasture unscathed. Those of us who have strayed, understand the real consequences of all of those rocks and brambles and dangers that we've scrambled to on our foray outside the flock. And those cuts and bruises, at the very least, take a very long time to heal. But once we return to the right path, we return to the blessing of God, and Christ is all we need. He is with you and me as we go through the valley of the shadow of death. And the good news is that you and I won't be in that valley forever. God is going to lead us to green pastures and still waters. That's what's on the other side of that valley. He restores our souls. And that's a promise that he's going to keep even beyond our dying day. I've been reading... Uh, I just finished reading Fox's Book of Martyrs. And in it you read 
the terrible accounts of executions of countless Christians ever since the apostles. And these people were murdered because they loved Jesus Christ. And it would be awfully morbid and depressing reading except for the hope that I found in its pages because of the incredible trust in God that each of those martyrs possessed. Even, even while the flames began licking at their lower extremities because they were tied to stakes, so many of them to be burned for their devotion to Christ. My hero in the Book of Martyrs is a woman named Mrs. Prest. She was a lover of Jesus Christ. And her husband, her husband actually turned her into the Catholic authorities. This was during the reign of Queen Mary. He turned her in because she didn't believe in the Mass and she didn't believe in praying to the saints and so on and so on. And so let me read to you the account of her sentencing. When the sentence was read, condemning her to the flames, (laughs) she lifted up her voice and praised God, adding, This day have I found that which I have long sought. And when they tempted her to recant, that is, they offered to exchange, uh, to to give her her life back if only she would uh, reject the Christ whom she knew from the Bible. When they tempted her to recant, she said, that will I not. God forbid that I should lose the life eternal for this carnal and short life. I will never turn from my heavenly husband to my earthly husband, from the fellowship of angels to mortal children. God is my father. God is my mother. God is my sister, my brother, my kinsman. God is my friend, most faithful. Do you hear what she just said? She said, God is everything she needs. And she said, God is my friend most faithful after she was condemned to die. She never once complained of her circumstances. She was in jail for a while. But she considered it all joy to encounter a trial like this one, even to walk down into the valley of the shadow of death. Here's a woman who feared no evil because she knew her Lord was with her forever. She knew that all she had to do was to follow the shepherd, even if it meant following him to the stake to be burned. She knew that all she needed was Christ, and she knew that he would take her to the greenest pasture she'd ever seen. And the same is true for us, brothers and sisters. No matter what our valley looks like, it means that we can live fearlessly like Mrs. Prest. Paul said in Philippians 1.21, For to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. And that means that your calling in a troubled marriage is to learn to be a godly husband or wife in God's eyes and to live courageously in the Lord no matter what your spouse does or says. And it means that when things are difficult at work that your real job is to follow Christ and apply his word to your situation and to do all of the work you do as unto him. 
And it means that when you're lonely, that Christ is indeed your faithful companion. It means that when you're sick and even gravely ill, that nothing can take your joy in the Lord because you're going to be with him forever. You're a winner either way. Whatever your situation, the promise of Psalm 23 is that if you are one of his sheep, even a sheep that is in grave danger, Christ, your shepherd, is with you. And so that means the power of God, the power of that majestic God we learned about in Psalm 8, the one true God, that his power is being applied to your life and to your situation by name. And it means, it means that the path on which Christ is walking with you is meant for your good. The Hebrew word for with is very important here because it describes God's special presence with us. It means that God is going to intervene for you to protect and preserve you as one of his own, not only in terms of eternal salvation, but it'll also guide you in a way that brings glory to him and blessing to you because he is your rest. He is your food. He is your life as long as you follow him. And in turn, what will follow you is God's loyal love. It'll never go away. He will pursue you with it. Verse 6, surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. I will worship him forever in my eternal home. You know, we've got to stop here. I don't want to. There is so much more I wanted to say today. I feel like we've only scratched the surface of this incredible psalm. But the bottom line is, is, is that what David's saying is that, yes, God really is the perfect shepherd. He really is because he gives us exactly what we need. He gives us himself. We don't have anything to fear because he's with us. And because he's with us, we don't need anything else. Christ is everything we need. And so as I reflect on all of this, this is what I've realized over the last couple of years. I've faced a couple of illnesses. These verses have reverberated through my soul. And I don't know of a, a better way of explaining the assurance that we have in Christ that, that Psalm 23 is telling us about than just to say, that I've got this incredible peace. I can't explain it. Even though I've walked through the valley of the shadow of death, there, there are, there's lots of people who are facing things that I can't imagine what it would be like to face. But even so, I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid. And only God can provide that peace. Only God can provide that green pasture for me and those still waters. I can't make that up, but I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid. 
And so as my brain was being zapped with gamma rays a couple weeks ago, I had a wonderful time of worship. I asked him to play Pandora, uh, play on Pandora, Bach for me, because Bach was an amazing believer. And he wrote music that I sure hope we'll be listening to in heaven. And so as I lay there listening to Bach for 45 minutes as the machine did its thing, I just rejoiced and recited Psalm 23 over and over again. The Lord is my shepherd, and he's yours too if you follow him. You and I are not going to lack for anything that we need, even though we walk through the valley of the shadow of death, even not if we die, but when we die. And the reason is, is because Christ is with us. Let's bow our heads and pray and prepare for the communion table. Elder Ernest Ariola will usher us there. Heavenly Father, Thank you. Thank you for being our faithful shepherd. Thank you, Lord, for being our trustworthy shepherd who gives us life, who always leads us to good things, to blessings, and who gives us Christ, the good shepherd who laid down his life for us so that we might live in eternity with you. Hallelujah. And amen.